0: It was a crazy year. Over the course of it, America's idea of itself went through a seismic shift, and it began 50 years ago. Welcome to 2018. Let's talk about 1968. This is Radio Atlantic. Happy New Year! I am Matt Thompson, Executive Editor of The Atlantic. Here with me in DC. Hello, Jeff. Jeff who? (laughs) Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of the Atlantic. That that
1: Jeff, yes. Hi. I I don't know. That was like, I don't know. Maybe we have first-time listeners who don't know the cast of characters. We very well might. Yeah, I hope we do. Over
0: there in New York, you have heard the delightful (laughs) laughter of our esteemed co-host, Alex Wagner.
2: Good tidings, good tidings in the new year. She's so
1: esteemed. She continues to be esteemed
0: always. You are also esteemed, Jeff. (laughs) No, I'm not esteemed this time. Jeff, who? Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. And joining us from California is Atlantic staff writer Connor Friedersdorf. Connor, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We are talking today about the year. 1968. It's January 2018. However, 50 years ago was the beginning of the year that many call the most momentous year in modern American history. Connor, you came up with the idea a few months back. You said we should do a whole year-long, year-spanning project focused on 1968. Why is this year so interesting?
3: Well, you have this... Interesting combination of these seminal touchstone moments Martin Luther King being assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy being assassinated in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive and the My Lai Massacre were seminal events of that year that started to turn the country against the war in Vietnam. You have the iconic Black Power salute at the Mexico City Olympics. Uh, These moments in history that we all remember. And at the same time, you have all of these little smaller moments that you'd never know about unless you delve into the archives of newspapers and magazines, Mm -hmm. as I've been doing, in part because I've become frustrated with what I think of as a presentist bias in media today, talking about Donald Trump. And I saw at the end of 2017, a lot of headlines that were saying, is this the craziest year in American political history? (laughs) And I thought, no, not even close. Uh, the Civil War years were probably the craziest years in, in American political history or perhaps the Revolutionary War years. And, and in modern American history, maybe 1968 was the year that upended everything in ways that really tore apart the whole country and caused a lot of people to look back and remember that year as a time when a lot of things changed. What is resonant or relevant about 1968 to you now? I am going to be consuming culture that was produced in 1968 until the end of my life. I have seen the movie The Graduate, which was actually released in 67, but won Academy Awards in 1968. Um, You know, I've seen that movie a dozen times. I'm going to be listening to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and albums that, you know, they released the White Album that year and Her Satanic Majesty's Request. I'm going to be listening to those albums until I'm old that's different than bygone generations. My parents, who were starting high school in 1968, were not listening to music or watching movies that were produced in 1918. So you have these technological changes that made it possible for the culture of that year to carry over to today. And, you know, So we're conversant with the culture of 1968 today. It shaped us. Uh, You have resonances with the student demonstrations of that year and the campus upheavals of this year, and it it really informed us and shaped us in a way that five decades in the past hadn't always done in in other periods in American history. And so I think that uh, you can look back and see similarities and differences that can inform how we behave as citizens today and how we understand our world today.
2: Can, can I ask, um, Connor, do you feel like the, the 50 years between 68 and 2018 are a particularly chaotic or fruitful half century compared to other 50 year periods?
3: Well, there's certainly a very particular period in American history when coming off of World War II, the United States just became a hegemon in ways that it never had before. And there's this moment that I think of in the late 90s when, you know, you're reading about, oh, this is the end of history and the beginning of global uh, democracy. And, uh, you know, the United States is going to kind of retain this place as the American experiment informing the rest of the world. And now we're seeing that actually we're in a kind of chaotic period where a lot of things in the world are up in the air. A lot of people are losing faith in the American experiment and questioning the future, Uh, kind of an authoritarian moment in American politics. And so I I do feel as though the period we're in now and 1968 are uh, resonant with one another, and you know, you could say that the mid '90s and the '50s were two times when America was relatively united and felt assured of its future, and maybe those two time periods resonated with one another. We're gonna come back to that, uh, uh, Jeff. Uh, how much can how much are we allowed to spoil the fact
0: for our listening audience that we're gonna be revisiting
1: these? Events? Surprise, listening audience! We're <laughs> gonna be revisiting 1968 <laughs> in a pretty big way. We're gonna be revisiting uh, in 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 various ways. Uh, the King assassination in particular and the consequences of that, which feels very, very obviously fresh. Um, I mean, I think the impetus for us to focus on that, well, we have a number of reasons. The first is that the, the Atlantic published letter from a Birmingham jail. We have a long association with the civil rights uh, movement as an issue. Um, but I think also there is this overwhelming feeling that, uh, to state the obvious that the election of barack obama did not actually uh bring about a a tidy resolution to the issue and challenges of race in america and
2: uh, (laughs) what turns out don't spoil that spoiler
1: spoiler alert race is still an issue in america uh is that the kind of spoiler alert you were trying to (laughs) (laughs) well Um, but uh you know this is uh this is paramount uh for us as a as a journalistic institution. And um, I think last year, 2017, really proved to us that we can't do enough on this issue. And so the opportunity to go revisit, uh, I would say that the King assassination is one of the most important events of post-World War II America. And we can use that as a locus to sort of say, um, you know, where have we gone? Where have we not gone? Where did we think we were going? and and what happened along the way. So uh, there's no spoiler here. We're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about this. So we are going to be revisiting
0: some of the major events of 1968 in a big way as the year progresses. But, Connor, you kicked off the year by looking at some of the smaller moments, as you said. What did you find when you went back through newspaper archives at the first of the year to see uh, some of those little nuggets
3: um, that tell us something about the texture of that time? Uh, just about any newspaper... From any day in 1968, it is a fascinating read, uh, from a present perspective. Uh, one of the things I found, for example, in the Los Angeles Times was a headline, Doctor's Bills Expected to Continue Their Rise. It's a headline that you could have seen yesterday. And you kind of go into the story and it says, it used to be that a new baby was $200. Now the bill is slightly below $250. And that's $1,808 in 2017 dollars. And of course, mm-hmm. Today, uh, I looked it up, the Kaiser Family Foundation says that it's an average of $9,700 for a normal delivery and roughly $12,500 for a cesarean section. So we're talking about some serious medical inflation. And so this was something they were worried about back in 1968, and the problem just got worse and worse and worse. Um, Just little nuggets like that that you can pick up and get context for some of the debates that we have today. And then there are other little moments In other parts of the newspaper, for example, the advertisements are as fascinating or more fascinating than the articles. Always. Looking at this home magazine that was produced in California called California Home. And this just captures the strange moment of uh, gender dynamics in 1968. So we think back of that year as, oh, this is the sexual revolution is happening, right? Uh, And yet here I have this home magazine, and it has an ad that says, The 14-Year Itch. As a marriage matures, another kind of crisis develops. The wife grows more sophisticated and confident with her cooking skills. She wants to spend most of her time in the kitchen working on fancier foods. Yet her husband never loses his appetite for good, wholesome everyday food, like mashed potatoes. These marriages can all be saved. With French's instant mashed potatoes, they have a flavor so good it fools the experts. Your husband can have the good, wholesome, simple food he desires— and you can have the extra time to work on even fancier foods because French's instant mashed potatoes take so little time to prepare.
2: <laughs> Finally, something to free me up when I'm making small finger sandwiches and truffle deviled eggs.
1: <laughs> By the way, Alex is married to one of the world's great chefs, yes. so I don't want don't <laughs> to don't hear her. Pretty sure enough. that French's I don't instant mashed potatoes. It's
2: more a like key this white is yeah. But,
1: you know what's interesting about that, Connor, is that in 19 – I think it was 1932, Helen Keller published a piece in The Atlantic, a very famous piece, advocating for women to get their husbands into the kitchen and to do housework so they could learn what the lives of women are like. But if you look at the ads in The Atlantic in 1968, just like ads in other newspa- other magazines and newspapers, um, they were all predicated on the idea – correct idea – that women were doing 90 95% of all the housework. It's interesting that um, – that Helen Keller's piece in The Atlantic didn't change anything. Uh, but <laughs> Connor, so so one of the questions that I have about 1968, and I think this comes out of interviewing Ken Burns recently about his documentary series on Vietnam. And one of the things that came out of this documentary series was that 67, 68, 69, uh, these are the years in which Americans lost faith in their politicians, where Americans began to understand that presidents lie. And I'm wondering if you had to rank order the 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 long-term consequences of events of 1968, I would I was wondering if you would uh where you would put sort of the loss of faith in political leadership um in in the in the sort of century-long ranking of of why this year is so important. Uh could you talk about that for a minute?
3: Well, one thing I've been f- most fascinated to read about as President Trump was rising to power is some of the literature on authoritarianism and authoritarian moments. And one of the themes that kept recurring was that the authoritarian tendency in voters is often latent for long periods of time, uh, but that certain qualities, certain things cause it to become extant. And one of those things is a loss of faith in leadership or a feeling that leadership is inept or corrupt. And I think that Both today and in 1968, you see these moments where the loss of, uh, loss of faith in leadership and protests surrounding it both were the impetus for eventual progress, but also uh, frightened voters in a way that caused them to embrace, in one case, Richard Nixon and in another case, Donald Trump. Um, one difference, I think, from the Nixon era was that Watergate Although it diminished faith in the government, uh, it it was a moment of widespread respect for the press. And today we have the country pretty divided about whether they trust the press, uh, but pretty unified in distrusting Congress and politicians.
2: Connor, on, on that note, I was surprised, um, to read an, El- an Elizabeth Drew, uh, story that was published in the Atlantic in 1968. The level of cynicism that was already at play within the political parties themselves. She writes in a piece, it is a sign of the destitution of the current state of politics that to a major extent, each party's program consists of counting on the other to defeat itself. I mean, that's something that you could have written yesterday.
0: Absolutely. Interesting thing about this conversation, uh, only one of us, I believe, had actually been born in 1968. Oh, which one was that? Matt. <laughs> no, of course. <according>. Hmm. Hmm.
2: <laughs> Jeff. Which Jeff? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> According to biographical details, I feel comfortable divulging here because you've already disclosed them in prior episodes of Radio Atlantic. I have. You have been around four years old at this time.
1: Uh, Three. So let's not push it.
2: Let's not age him.
1: Let's not not push it.
0: (laughs) And you were living in Queens, New York?
1: Brooklyn. Brooklyn. To be exact. To be exact.
2: So I want to tell
0: you a little story. Smoking a ton of weed, by the way. At three.
1: turning on and dropping out, man. Hearted. Yeah. Toddler Jeff. Yeah.
0: I want to tell you a little story that was happening right around the corner from you in January of 68. Um, and I, I yeah, you know, this is just such a fascinating little window for me into how crazy a time it was. And the story kind of set the template for a lot of what we're still wrestling with today. Jeff, any of you actually, have you heard of the National Economic Growth and Reconstruction Organization?
1: Can't say that I have. <laughs>
0: Any, any 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 other takers? No, it's, no. It's, so if you'll note the acronym, it's Negro. So January 4th, 1968, the New York Times publishes this, uh, this little item that begins like this. Quote, a Negro organization, which was ordered this week to stop operating unfranchised bus service in Queens and Harlem, has offered to buy the city bus lines that run through Harlem. If the city will not sell the bus lines, the organization known as Negro – and again, that's the National Economic Growth and Reconstruction Organization – has asked that the city remove its buses from Harlem and let the Negro group run its own buses there. So this is a tiny little story. Why do I find it fascinating? Some rogue group wants to supplant the city bus service. Fine. I want to call you all's collective attention and that of our listeners to the guy at the center of the story whose name is basically the opposite of mine. It's Dr. Thomas Matthew. Have Any of you ever heard of this guy? No. No. After the item ran in the Times, Dr. Matthew is about to get a ton of attention. He was already on the radar. Newsweek had profiled his organization, Negro, in this giant special report issue they did in 1967 called The Negro in America. But I want you to read a brief – I want to read you a brief passage from his bio in a New York Times profile from 1970. Quote, he was born in a basement next to Knickerbocker Hospital when the hospital refused to admit his mother because she was black. He lived in various basements with his parents. His father was a janitor and his six brothers and sisters until the age of 19. It was while attending a New Year's Eve party in St. Louis that he received word that he'd been accepted by Harvard Medical Center. He borrowed $50 from a friend and set off for Boston the next day in an old car he'd constructed out of used parks. Dr. Matthew who was the country's first black neurosurgeon, practiced at Mount Sinai Hospital and then at Coney Island Hospital. Later, he founded the Interfaith Hospital in Jamaica, Queens, on the theory that a hospital was one of the best places to provide jobs for people, end quote. So late in 1968, Dr. Matthew is about to be booked into federal prison for willfully refusing to pay his income taxes on principle. In January of 1969, President Richard Nixon reached down from on high to give him clemency and get him out of federal jail. In 1970, he leads a group of black squatters to take over Ellis Island for several weeks. Then he's all over the national press for several years before he's sent to prison once again for misusing federal funds. It turns out that Dr. Matthew is a mixture of Herman Cain crossed with Ben Carson crossed with Oprah with like a dash of Paul Manafort thrown in there. Uh, but the most important thing to know about him is probably his philosophy, because it's a window into the really surprising politics of the moment. You have to keep these two things in mind: Doctor Matthew is a black nationalist, one, and the Nixon administration totally loves him, too. I want you guys to listen to a clip of him from an interview he did in October of nineteen sixty-eight, which will give you a sense of what Negro was all about. Well, first of all, we're not just a, a a business organization. We're an organization attempting to rehabilitate the black
3: man in America into an identifiable people. We don't think it's enough to say that we're just black men. We must know which black man are we. We must have a specific identity, and we submit that the black man in America here
0: has a particular history. He has a culture. He has a difference about him because of the historical experiences he's had that differentiates him
3: from any black man elsewhere in the world. So consequently, we are a tribe, a nation, social nation, if you will. We call it the Negro.
0: So you hear in that clip, he's a black nationalist, but he was introduced to Richard Nixon by Pat Buchanan. And Richard Nixon would make him in some ways the centerpiece of his outreach to uh, to black Harlem, black New York um, in 1968. Um, Why, I might ask, would a Republican president and the Republican presidential administration um, love a black nationalist? It's one of the weird Vortices of vortexes of 1968 politics. There are, of course, many strains of black nationalism. One of them was Dr. Matthew's strain, the e- black economic nationalists, the folks who said African-Americans need to be self-sufficient. We need our own separatist economy and economic strategy. Um, Dr. Matthew made this big deal out of selling Negro bonds um, for his organization. Um And saying that economic investment into black America needs to not look like welfare. He had this huge argument with the NAACP uh, and he led a group of Negro demonstrators to the NAACP offices and they did this big demonstration before they they got kicked out. He would fall somewhat precipitously from grace in 1973 after he was convicted of misusing federal funds that had gone to his interfaith hospital. Um, but he was this crazy uh, entrepreneurial black nationalist, conservative-friendly figure uh, that I think was just this window into how weird and unexpected the politics of 1968 really were. Knowing that that the Nixon administration certainly took issue with many black nationalists, with with Malcolm X, uh, among others. Does it surprise you to know that there was a strain of black nationalism in Harlem that that was very uh,
3: appealing to, to conservatives at the time? Well, it's – you know, situating Richard Nixon within conservatism is itself a very uh, fraught enterprise, you know. In just a few years, you're going to have Dick Cheney and uh, – <laughs> dick cheney and rumsfeld sitting in a room deciding on what prices everything is going to be in the economy as nixon imposes it so he has a very unusual relationship to conservatism and hearing this story makes me wonder if this individual wasn't serving two purposes at once on the one hand he was preaching this kind of uh by the bootstraps do-it-yourself message that has always resonated with conservatives. And on the other hand, he was a radical of the sort that was going to uh, put some voters ill at ease and maybe drive them into the arms of Nixon. Maybe that's too cynical. I don't know. The context here was 1967. This was a year when
0: race riots were happening around the country. When cities are going up in flames around the country and there's this almost national divergence between two approaches to it, Nixon's law and order approach and the course of action that that uh, Dr. King was foremost in uh, stumping for, that there's real economic recompense that needs to be made for African-Americans to address what was at the root of this fury We went down one of those two paths as a country, but I I think it says something about just how volatile and dynamic and interesting 1968 was that a fellow, like the first black neurosurgeon in America, according to the Times, became a footnote in history, not even a name that any of us recognize.
2: And also how complex race is when it intersects with politics and how as much as we think it unfolds along certain lines – we're reminded that often it doesn't
0: absolutely all right in a minute we're going to come back for another edition of the world's worst game show as it's been dubbed (laughs) by alex wagner stay tuned All right, Jeff, Alex, Connor, I am going to ask you about a few different indicators. And I want you to tell me whether you think they've gotten better since 1968 or worse. Are they worse today uh, than they were then or uh, are they better now? Let's start with the homicide rate. Which do you think it was? Um, according The to
2: National m- Homicide Rate.
0: National rate. Homicide Rate, according to the most recent available data. And all of these will be w- using the latest de- data available versus uh, our the p- same picture in 1968. Is
1: this a game show about homicide rates? Because no. if that's the case, then it is actually the hum- worst game show in history, <laughs> by the <Sides>. way.
2: <clears throat> I'm going to say the homicide rate has gone down. Well, if only because I know the New York City murder rate is... Down, although Chicago is up, but I feel like nationally we're trending down.
1: I think it was spiking already by sixty-eight, although I could be wrong. So I think that we're if we're not down from there, we're at state, we're at the same level.
3: Yeah.
0: Any guesses, Connor? Better or worse?
1: Connor probably actually has the stats in
0: front
3: of him. No, I don't. I think we're at about the same level. I'm going to say maybe it was a little bit better. That's a guess. I think it was close.
0: Yeah, so the homicide rate was actually quite a bit better um, today versus 1968. Um, 4.9 per 100,000 people in the uh, latest data, 6.9 in 1968.
1: So we were already on the upward spike Yes, that, that culminated in the late what eighties, early nineties.
0: Yeah, and it, it's not clear to me how much of that was just improvements in medical medical technology mm. um, in the intervening decades.
2: Seatbelts, I guess that's not homicide. <laughs> yeah. no, probably not.
0: <laughs> uh, but I'm going to ask the same question about the violent crime rate overall: better, worse,
1: worse,
2: worse now. Worse, yeah, then.
0: worse now. Worse now. No, actually, rape I'll, I'll is say way better. Down.
2: I'm saying worse then.
1: You're saying worse then? I think maybe worse then, actually. I'm changing my.
0: Yeah, so it's actually worse today. Um, The Mm. violent crime rate was uh, uh, 298 per 100,000 in 1968 and 397 uh, per 100,000 in in the latest data. And of course, again, there's this question. Um, A a lot of that, the aggravated assault rate was higher. today. Um, And the reports of rape were also higher today. But is that just because uh, we both recognize more behaviors as rape and they're more likely to be reported? I don't know. So there's this measure of income inequality called the Gini ratio. Do you think that that measure has gotten better or worse since 1968? I'm going
2: to guess it's gotten worse, (laughs) aka it's more extreme.
0: Yes. Okay, I'm I'm just going to move past that one because yes, it has moved from uh, 0.348 in 68 to 0.452 today, which doesn't mean much, but it all that is to say that income inequality has gotten significantly worse. Interestingly, though, 1968 was actually the most income equal year, um, according to to census data since 1947. Like, income equality was at its peak in 1968. Um,
2: And do we know what the top marginal tax rates were back then (laughs) or average CEO pay? I'm sure if we looked into it, those might be factors that influence.
0: I'm very sure. Okay, here's a subject that comes up a lot today and came up a lot in 1968. How do you think Americans respect for the police? Uh, Has changed according to the percentage of Americans who responded that they have a a, quote great deal of respect for the police. Do you think that there were uh, it was a higher percentage uh, in 1968 or a higher percentage today?
2: I mean, are we just broadly sampling the country? I'm sure that, especially today, that's one of those questions where it varies wildly depending on who's being asked the question and what the sample size is from that population. right? So it's this hard is to a- get persnickety with statistics. Boy, but- you know. this is a
0: Gallup. This is the Gallup uh, survey. So it's it's a tracking survey that's been going on since um, since the 60s. So it's a pretty large sample size and pretty consistent.
1: I am going to oh, guess sure. that it's been stable in the sense that, well, this is why, because last year, after all of the controversy around police shootings of unarmed blacks and Black Lives Matter, um, there were are, are polls, I remember, suggesting that approval for police is somewhere around 75 or 80 percent, regardless of all the things that were happening. And so we sometimes forget, in sorry to say it, the media bubble, that there are a lot of There's a lot of people in America who don't think like people uh, in the East Coast and West Coast elite. So I'm going to guess that it's pretty stable
2: or not even East Coast and West Coast elites. But I mean, depending on if, you know, where you talk to communities of color, there's going to be different attitudes towards law enforcement.
1: Right. But that's that's universal across the country. But what I'm saying is that among whites, the the support for police in particular has been high and remains high.
2: Remains high. Yeah
0: interestingly 1968 and 2016 were the two years when respect for the police was highest and it was about the same jeff you're right that it it was so in moments about- in
1: moments of civil disorder people run to the police most people run to the police and 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 think of the police as having a very hard job
0: yeah I think that's definitely one inference that one could take from that data.
1: But what are the numbers? I'd be very interested to see what the numbers are in the African-American community, because I have a feeling there are generational splits in that as well.
0: So we can only go back to 2000. But yes, as you might expect, folks who are not white expressed a fairly significantly lower amount of respect for the police. When Gallup started tracking this in 2000, it was 62 to 46 uh, white to not white. In the recent spike, it was 80 to 67. Um, I'm going to ask you one more. Uh, We could keep playing this game all day. Got a bunch of of indicators here. Let me ask you one more. Um, How do you think that the minimum wage, inflation-adjusted minimum wage, has fared since 1968? Do you think it's higher or lower than it was?
3: I think the federal minimum wage is lower than it was, but that the states that have pushed it up to 15 are higher.
2: I agree with Connor. I think the federal, I feel like we must be talking about the federal minimum wage here, uh, is, yes. is lower.
3: I agree with Alex,
0: who agrees with Connor. Yes. And you would all be correct. Uh, federal minimum wage, um, $10.74 in 1968, now $7.25. Um, uh, wow. Always a reminder that in 1963, in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, one of the demands, um, that Dr. King and the marchers were marching for was the equivalent of a $15 minimum wage. In today's dollars, so that's it. The
2: more things change, the more they stay the same.
1: Absolutely. Wait, did you did you invent that saying?
2: <laughs> Listen, I'm patenting that on Radio Atlantic. That's if you hear amazing. it again, I deserve a residual.
1: I'm writing it down. <laughs> um, any of that surprise you? You know, one of the most interesting stats, and this is, you know, I learned this also from from Ken Burns and watching his very long uh, documentary, uh, you know, it was a minority of people in America. It was a loud minority, but it was a minority that was radicalized, uh, by the Vietnam war. Uh, the silent majority was a real thing. And we find that in the black lives matter protests of, of last year. we see that in the remarkably consistent rates of police approval, uh, police approval ratings. Um, the country is basically a conservative country, uh, and the, the, the country is essentially a conservative country. There are moments of radicalization across broad swaths of the population, but basically the default position of people, especially in times of radical change and disorder, is to move to order. And and have greater respect for uh, police and other institutions that keep keep the peace. I, I was I was surprised myself at the at the at the positive ratings the police received uh, in polls last year, given all that we had seen.
0: Yeah, I I don't know that I would conflate conservatism and uh, and
1: love, I don't mean political conservatism. Peace. I mean conservatism, because like you know, sort uh, yeah, sort
2: of institutionalists, etc. Institutionalists, yeah. Et yeah. Cetera. Institutionalists, yeah. yeah. So let
0: us move. Uh, we will stay with 1968 uh, throughout, as I mentioned. 2018 and Connor, I hope you'll, we'll have you back as we do. But now I want to turn to our closing segment for the first time in 2017. Favorite Keepers. albums of
1: 1968.
0: <laughs>
2: so the first time in 2018, <laughs> I think is well the be. year.
0: Wait, Sorry, correct
2: me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I believe the year is 2018. Oh,
0: this is only the first of many, many times in which I'm going to make that mistake. Keepers, Alex. Let me turn to. You you first what of everything that you've seen heard enjoyed experienced in recent days not enjoyed would you most like to keep what would you like to not forget
2: as we speak of the old i have gone back to an age old uh, food stuff that deserves uh resurrection if you will a dusting off a renaissance um and, and should be a phenomenon in this year and every year henceforth, which is bone broth. Now, I know if some of you follow the sort of food blogs, you know that bone broth is very au courant, But of course, broth made from bones is a very old thing. But in this season of bitter, hellacious, ass-biting cold, that's going to get us the explicit rating on iTunes. <laughs> there is nothing better than a coffee cup filled with hot Bone broth. It is nourishing. It has collagen. It has restorative properties. It's tasty. It's better than coffee. I've been drinking a lot of it. I'm getting sick, but I feel like the bone broth may be the thing that staves off. The Winter Blues. <laughs> Man, it and it's too really bad.
3: old. It
1: is too bad that we're not underwritten by bone broth this week. <laughs> yeah, that was, bone broth that was a very ink. eloquent and Let heartfelt me just tell you, endorsement. It, it's
2: better than anything that they were serving in 1968, <laughs> and it, they, in fact, they may have been serving it under the name consommé <laughs> back then. But at any rate,
0: you it, can make go, your go own, find yourself a cup. You can make your own bone broth at home with your your new and shiny uh, pressure cooker slash instant pot for those of you who got that as a gift in this holiday season. Connor, what is your keeper this week?
3: Well, since we started out with some Cambodian surf rock, my keeper is this Japanese psychedelic surf rock band that I recently discovered called Kikagaku Moyo. And if you could imagine that the Japanese took... The Beach Boys, and sort of the same way that they took whiskey and sort of refined it and then put their own spin on it. This is that band, and I've been enjoying it in the new year. I suggest you all do as well. <laughs> Kikugayu Moyo, is that right? Yeah, that is right.
0: Thank you for that,
1: Jeff. What would you like? I'm to staying keep? with a 1968 <laughs> theme, Electric Ladyland. Yes, Jimi Hendrix Experience. Oh, we're going to be coming Hulu back to Child, that. <laughs> Slight Return, Crosstown Traffic. One of the greatest albums of all time, I think. Indeed. A lot of great Indeed. albums in 1968. There I are. couldn't name most of them. Yeah, but a lot of great albums from 1968. Um, so, so of our colleagues. I are think. I coming. think you know Hendrix. Yeah, now and forever.
0: I know at least one of our colleagues who would be criminally offended that the, that the White Album was not the. The one you chose, however, I side with you, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm all Hendrix. Uh, my keeper for the week is also music-related. It's not 1968, um, but in 1973, <clears throat> Elton John um, was out on tour, um, uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road um, uh, was about to come out. Uh, he was, uh, in some ways, at the, the height of his powers, although a pretty powerful guy, and um, he performed this astonishing, um, concert, uh, s- tour. And, uh, one of my Christmas gifts this year was <laughs> a, uh, ticket to a tribute concert, uh, in honor of, uh, of this concert, um, by the, the group Rocket Man at the House of Blues in Orlando, Florida. Um, it was a delight and it was, um, One of the things that has changed, one of the things that has definitely uh, been different from 1968 to today is that uh, live music has in some ways diminished in its presence as as entertainment. There are fewer live concerts. Musicians uh, have a harder time supporting themselves. Um, uh, There are not as many of those just blockbuster transcendent cultural live concert moments as for example this 1973 Elton John goodbye Elbrick Road tour and to see it reenacted uh, in the most delightful way by a guy by the Elton Johnniest uh, tribute <laughs> performer uh, that one could imagine was a real treat. I do not want to forget it was a joy. Tribute concerts, man. They can be kitschy, but that one was just a joy. It was a joy to be transported to an era that I was not alive during to a concert that I never would have been able to see, and I don't want to forget it. And with that, that brings us to the end of another Radio Atlantic. Alex, thank you very much.
2: Grazie mille.
0: A pleasure as always. We'll see you next week, Alex.
2: Till next week.
0: Jeff, Connor,
1: thanks. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Kim Lau and Diana Douglas. Thank you to our colleague, Connor Friedersdorf, for joining us. And, as always, to my co-hosts, Jeffrey Goldberg and Alex Wagner. Speaking of my esteemed co-host, Alex is going to be one of the hosts of Showtime's political documentary series, The Circus. I will definitely be watching when the next season begins in April, and don't worry, we will not be Radio Atlanticing without her. Congrats, Alex. We would love to hear your thoughts about this episode and your stories about 1968 or any of the themes we discussed. So leave us a voicemail at 202-266-7600. Don't forget your contact info. Check us out at facebook.com slash radioatlantic and theatlantic.com slash radio. Catch the show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Most importantly, thank you for listening. May the year ahead reward all your hopes for it. We'll see you next week.